The reading for today is from Acts chapter 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Ashley. Well, we this morning have an incredible privilege of hearing from Tom Schrader. He is a uh, f- founding pastor of East Valley Bible Church, and was, uh, which became one of the main churches uh, that launched Redemption Church. Uh, he is an incredible man, an incredible preacher, very wise. Um, so listen to literally every single word he has to say. So um, without further ado, come on up. Thanks, Cody. Thank you. I got it. Well, good morning. It's great to see you and, and be with you. Uh, I'm here, uh, Frank and Jackie and the family are in Wisconsin. It's kind of something they do every summer. And because of, I don't know how to, Cody, can you help me get this? Oh, here you, I got it. No, I don't. I'm not, I can't. My hands don't work. I have, uh, right, right there. I've become, I've become the definition of high maintenance. I'm, I'm so sorry. So they're away, and uh, their uh, departure is my gain. It gives me the chance to, to be with you, and I love that, to see you, and to be here this morning, which is going to be absolutely a thrill, and uh, then again tonight. So we look forward to it. If you have Bibles, uh, open them, if you would, please, to the book of Acts. Uh, The full title of this is the Acts of the Apostles. And the book of Acts, just to remind you, is kind of a transition book between the Gospels and the book of Romans and the balance of the New Testament. It is written, the book of Acts, by uh, Luke, who also wrote uh, uh, Gospel Luke. And in a sense, this is volume two of that book. It's an important book in the sense that this transition uh, explains to us or details to some degree the expansion of the church and how that actually took place. It's not detailed, but it gives us the highlights. It gives us the flavor. And and I I wrote down, it gives us the successes and the failures. It's a pretty open, honest discussion. And that's really true in this passage we see this morning. In Acts chapter 15, verse 36 we see Luke tell us that after some days, and there's not a specificity with that. That's an undetermined time. It implies 
a short period of time, some time. But after a while, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go. Let's visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word and see how they are. Let's follow up. And uh, as I prepare, and, and I love to mention it, and you've probably heard me talk about it before, the way I prepare is to read the passage in three, four different translations and paraphrases. And then I have three or four uh, times where I'll look at commentaries, and I have certain guys, if they've written on the topic, uh, I'll read them. James Boyce would be one, and he has, and Ray Steadman, and then several others. And then I'll make my general observations. And this is one of those occasions that really fits into how I like to teach. We're going to take a time to look at the passage, and then we're going to really ask, so, so what difference does this make to me? Yeah, I, It's cool to kind of study and look at them and go, wow, that Paul, he's a heck of a guy. But what difference does this make to me? In his introduction, and, and <laughs> in his introduction to this section, one of the authors writes this, when summer comes, most of us begin to think about vacations. That is really me. I'm a vacation guy. I love vacations. Sandy and I are leaving this Thursday for a couple of weeks, and normally my vacation pattern in the summer is to be gone July and August, and that's really terrific. This year, it's not going to work out that way. <laughs> but the author continues, if you've ever considered that there is hardly a reference in the Bible to vacations. I can't think of any vacations in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the only thing that comes close is the example of the Lord, who from time to time would go aside with his disciples and spend time praying, which is not actually a vacation by the, what we mean by vacation. These terms, times would correspond more to retreats. Now, vacations are important. I love them. Time to get away. Time to recreate. Okay, let me spin that word for you a little different. Recreate. The idea of getting away is to recreate myself so I can come back and re-engage in the work. It's, it's in, in a sense, Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. In that sense, we're never on vacation. Here's what's happening. Paul and Barnabas have returned from their first missionary journey. And after, can, can, will you just leave that verse up there for me, please? And after a while, they say, Paul says, and it demonstrates a pastor's heart here. I, let's go back and, and see how they're doing. When, when I came in today, uh, Steve Wheeler gave me a copy of Sports Illustrated, and it's a Where Are They Now edition. I, lo I love Where Are You Nows. Nobody does those better than Oprah. Oprah's Where Are They Now. She just did one last week with Lionel Richie, and it was, it was really good. Well, here's what Paul's kind of saying is, 
Let's go back and see where, where are they now? How are they doing? They, they came to Christ, and now we're going to check up on them. R- remember the key verse in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And, and that's where the command is, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, even the remotest parts of the earth. And in a way, that's an executive summary of the book of Acts. It's God spreading the gospel. And in that sense... And and several guys have made this observation. It's not unique to me. There's a sense in which the book of Acts is still being written. You are part of what God's doing in that remotest part of the earth. Acts chapter 9, verse 15, a guy by the name of Ananias comes and visits Paul. And, And he says... The Lord has told me that you are a chosen instrument to bear my name to the Gentiles and the kings. That was the call that Paul received in his life. We saw in Acts chapter 11, verse 25, verse 26, Barnabas leaves for Tarsus. He gets Saul, and they go to Antioch. And just by way of notation, I'm sure Frank mentioned it when you were studying it, that was the first place that the term Christian was used. Paul's beginning to move among the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 13, verse 12, they are in the Mediterranean. And and remember, Paul's going to share with the kings, the government, the Gentiles, the proconsul there. The governing authority believed. Just a couple verses later, same chapter, chapter 13, verse 38, they're back in Antioch, and the brethren are there, and they're proclaiming the forgiveness of sin. Paul is being used everywhere he goes. So back to chapter 15, verse 36, What he's saying is, let's go and see what God's doing in those places. Let's go and see how God is working, what's happening in the church. And and so they go. Motivated, I think, by Paul's love. Paul had a great love for the, the church. And they go. Now contrast this. I don't have the verse on the screen for you, but but you can flip back a a page or two. In Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 1, Paul leaves on the missionary journey, and and there's Barnabas, and they send him out, and they, verse 3, they fasted, they prayed, they lays hands on him, and they sent him out, filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that seems to have more formality to it than what we see here in chapter 15. It, it's simply that Paul says, let's go. Let's, let, let's just go. And Barnabas is certainly up for the trip. 
But in verse 37, we're told Barnabas wanted to take with him John, who's also called Mark. And we're going to call him Mark. That's how we really come to know him. So Paul says, let's go. Barnabas says, great. I'm ready to go. Let's take Mark with us. Verse 38, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him, that's Mark, who had deserted them at Pamphylia. He hadn't gone with them. And the result in verse 39 is that there is a sharp disagreement. The language implies that there is a violent disagreement, but amicable. I, I don't know how you reconcile that. But, but they, they sharply look at this and arrive at two different conclusions. Do you get it? I think it's pretty simple to understand. Those are the facts. There's a disagreement. So Barnabas says, I'm going to take Mark, and we're going to Cyprus, verse 40, 41, and Paul chooses Silas, and he left, and, and he is committed to the Lord by the brethren and the grace of the Lord. So there's a little bit of a commissioning there similar to what we saw at the beginning of the first missionary journey. The brothers come together, they pray over him, and he's traveling, and, and now he moves through Syria and the surrounding area. And, and we begin to break this down. Barnabas goes to Cyprus. Barnabas is from Cyprus. Paul takes Silas, heads in the other direction. I don't know if Frank used this phrase, but, but I was teaching at Gilbert for the beginning of the fish, first missionary journey, and I used this phrase. God uses real people in real places to have real impact. These are not fictional characters. This is not the Chronicles of Narnia. This is not make-believe. These are real people, flesh and bone, okay? And here's where we're going to land the rest of the time. I got about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. They're real people like you and real people like me. Real people like you and me living in community, which often raises tension and challenge it's so hard we're not just sinners walking around in a bubble and now saints we're saints but we're still in this flesh and there is a real disagreement among these two men looking at the same situation now I don't know how you are but this is how I am. I want to put blame on somebody. I, I read the other day that once every two weeks, a married couple argue over who lost the car keys, who lost the wallet, who lost something. 
And that's my thing. I came in the other day, I can't remember, my keys or something were gone, and I'm thinking, (laughs) right away, immediately, I'm thinking, where did Sandy put them? (laughs) Where did she move them? I have my system. I leave them there, and I developed a system after years of not finding it. I have a routine where I leave it there, and, and I came in, and I, and I have this way of introducing her guilt to the discussion without, without being accusatory. Oh, my keys aren't there. Do you have any idea where they might be? Since obviously you put them somewhere. I mean, that's what I say. That part I don't say. But, but here are these guys, and I want to know, who's right in this argument, Paul or Barnabas? And Luke, who is a physician, and, and so he brings with him a little bit of a physician mindset, so a little detail, probably a little picky, a little finicky, one thinks a certain way he operates. He gives us detail here, but he doesn't give us a human side of this. Luke doesn't say, Paul was right, Barnabas was right. And I don't want to settle for that 2017 solution, oh, they're both right. <laughs> but that's kind of where I landed. I, I made some, some notes ab- about this. It, it, it's interesting to me that in God's sovereignty, I think he wanted Mark in the game. And humanly, I don't think Mark was going to make it with Paul again. I I don't know that Paul would have trusted Mark in in the midst of difficulty. If you're going to do the ministry work that they're doing, it's going to be really tough sledding. And, and I think Paul goes right back to it. He's already, he's already got the idea that Mark's a millennial, okay? <laughs> he's already got He's going to quit. He's not going to be on time. He's not going to be able to gut it out. He's one of them. So he's already going to go right there when the tough time comes. Uh, it is interesting to me from a human perspective that in the next chapter, Paul hooks up with a young man named Timothy. So what could have easily happened is Paul had a bad experience with Mark and said, I've had it with that group of people. But he doesn't do it. He takes Timothy, who's identified as a young man, best guess, somewhere between 16 and 25. So that speaks highly of Paul. The church commissions Paul and Silas, which tends to give some weight to the idea that the church people thought these were the right guys. Here's kind of a trump card. Paul's an apostle, Barnabas is not. And the argument can be made pretty easily that Barnabas ought to be in subjection to Paul. Now, I don't know how deep that goes or how far that plays out, but you certainly could make that argument. What I do think 
that's significant is in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul mentions Barnabas again and, and doesn't mention it in a contentious way, but as we're co-workers. But in the book of Acts, we're done with Barnabas now. He falls off the map. So here's what I think you got. Paul's saying, listen, I did the Mark deal once. The pressure came. And he couldn't cut it. Give me an L, L, O, O, S, S, E, E, R, R. Loser, loser, loser. I'm not, I'm not, I, I can't. There's work to do I can't afford to babysit. Barnabas is saying, wow, Paul, I'll bet you never failed. He's a young man. This is what young men do. Young men screw up. Young men make mistakes. Old men make mistakes. Part of maturing is making mistakes and learning from it. He's my cousin. He's my kin. So I can vouch for him. I think he's learned. And these two guys are stuck there. Paul's looking. Now, these are big buckets. Hang with me now. Paul's looking at the work. Barnabas is looking at the person. Barnabas isn't ignoring the work. But the person trumps. That word's been kind of ruined. The person (laughs) trumps. The work, I know, robbing my vocabulary now. Paul's saying the work trumps the person. Here's the bottom line. You see these guys' personality manifest in this. Two ways of looking at the same situation. And in the whole process... God's sovereignty rises to the top. One more kind of interesting thing, and then we got to get to you. One more interesting thing. Barnabas is doing for Mark exactly what he did for Paul in Acts chapter 9. Remember that? Paul's in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 9, and they're going, we don't want anything to do. The, the leaders of the, we don't want anything to do with Paul. We don't want anything to do with Paul. And Barnabas is saying, he's a good guy. You can trust him. You need a Barnabas or two or three in your life, and you need to be a Barnabas. You need to hear those powerful, encouraging words, those I believe in you. My uh, life is forever changed by my relationship with a guy by the name of Larry Wright. And I, and I think about him all the time. But I taught at Bethany Bible Church on Father's Day, and that was Larry's church. That's where I first went to church. So I did a lesson on Larry, and I was thinking about him, and I was thinking that from my perspective, he's the Cut me slack. This is, this is a little corny. You need a Kleenex for this. But he was, he was the first person that believed in me. He, w- he was the first guy 
that I remember ever saying, you can do this. You're a good guy. You'll be okay. It, it moves right in to this giant point. Failure is not fatal. Uh, I would, and, and since I typed that and sent it over, I would probably add to it, failure is inevitable, but not fatal. You're going to fail. I'm reading right now. I, I mean, I have this wild reading plan. I'm reading all sorts of different stuff. And I ended up the other day with this book written by Bill Walsh, who was the legendary coach of the San Francisco 49ers. And I obviously am early in the book. At the end of the prologue, Walsh writes this. I've observed that if individuals who prevail in a highly competitive environment have one thing in common besides success, it's failure and their ability to overcome it. Crash and burn is part of it. So is recovery and reward. You're going to fail. The, the only way to not fail is to do nothing, which is probably the ultimate failure. I've got uh, heroes. Coach Wooden is one of them. And I was listening to an interview one night. Uh, UCLA had just beaten Pepperdine by 20. And listening to an interview with Coach Wooden, and he said, we didn't have enough turnovers tonight. Okay, so sports, you may not be a sports person. Turnover would be UCLA's got the ball, they make a play, Pepperdine steals it or ends up with the ball. And I thought, well, that's strange. We didn't have enough turnovers. We want more turnovers. And the guy doing the interview asked that question, and he said, we knew we were going to win. The boys knew they were going to win easily, so they didn't take any risk. They didn't push the ball up the court. They didn't make that tough pass. You're going to fail, but it's not fatal. It's not the end of the world. You're going to fail again and again and again and again and again. Sports is always a great uh, picture of it. You're going to fail in business. You know, 50% of relationships that are formalized in marriage, 50% of those don't work. That doesn't even count the thousands of relationships that are never formalized that don't work. But failure's not fatal. You can be, and we know that as believers, you can be forgiven. That's, that's what redemption is all about. I have a friend whose dad is antagonistic toward the Christian faith, beyond skeptical, cynical, hurtful. And he describes missionaries, you got to listen now, he describes missionaries as losers chasing losers. And, and, and I've got friends and they'll shake their head and go, that's terrible. 
No one's pretty accurate. We're losers, sinners. We spit in God's face. We flipped him off and told him, get away. And he saved us, and now we're going to go chase other people that are in that circumstance. So here's the sentence I like to add. Failure's not fatal. You are forgiven and useful. It's not just that you're forgiven. Some of you are sitting here, and you've made that trip. You've blown it, screwed it up big time, fill in the blank, whatever it is. Not once, not twice, ten times. And, and you've got it in your head that God will forgive you. It's bigger than that. He'll put you back in the game and use you. That's a big difference. It's very different between going, I'm forgiven. I'm not saying that. I'm saying he's going to use you. He's got a plan in the world, and you're part of that plan. This guy, Mark, if I give you the rest of the story, he goes away, and he becomes a fairly significant person. In fact, he wrote one of the Gospels. Which one? I always ask that because there's always U of A people that say John. Okay, so I would. No, he wrote Mark. Okay. Well, Paul's at the end of his life and he knows it. He's writing the last correspondence we have from him. And, he, and, he, and as he's writing, he says, The time for my departure's come, my life's being poured out, fought the good fight, finished the race. He's writing to Timothy. It's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, and he says this, Only Luke is with me. Look at that. There's our boy. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. That's you. It may not be some big way. I was a, I don't know why, I was dreaming all night, really weird dreams, and I woke up. I had the alarm set for 4.25. I woke up at 4.16, which is kind of cool. I'd always, I feel a sense of accomplishment when I don't have to use the alarm. So I got up, did my stuff, forgot to turn the alarm off. So the alarm went off for Sandy at 4.25, but, but I'm up. And, and, and the day seems long. All of a sudden, I'm at just 6.30, and I'm going through, and I end up watching a show about Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife. And it was this amazing show of how he used her. And, and you have the two of them. You got him out in front of millions, and she's really being used primarily with the kids and as his support team. God may use you, but it might not be in front of millions or thousands or hundreds. It may just be at work, at the gym, in the homeowners association. God knows we need help in the homeowners <laughs> association. 
We, we, we need that. That's where you are. You're on mission. Remember, I'm going to put a bow on this whole thing. God uses real people in real places to have real impact. That's you. He's got you. And our hope, and, I, and I've started, so it seems like almost every time I teach, I end up somewhere with this sentence, and I know I've used it here. Our hope is in the character of God and the promises of God and the faithfulness of God and the sovereignty of God. Ruth Graham today must have said a half a dozen times in these interviews, God has been so faithful. God has been so faithful. That's our hope. You and I live in a world with a whole bunch of things that competes for our hope. Stuff does, accomplishment does, relationships do. Our hope is in the character of God and who he is and the promises he makes. And the promise to you is he'll forgive you and he'll use you. You're useful. You're valuable, not, not because I say you are or the world says you are, but God says you are. That's why Christ died. Here you go. Get this. Christ died for you, all of us, but it loses some of its impact if I go, oh, Christ died for the whole world. Okay. Okay. He died for you. He went to the cross for you. God sovereignly sent his son to die for you. And the way he takes that message of hope to the world is through you. So our call is to make the invisible God visible and speak the truth boldly. Have you heard Frank say that? Okay. Let me tell you why he says it. He stole all this stuff that's good from me. Okay? <laughs> Make the invisible God visible. You become a display case for the work of God. Every time I walk into a department store, I, I'm stunned how they've got the cosmetics right up front, the most expensive space in the store. And they put them in that light. And there's always a lady sitting there with another lady, typically ladies and ladies, I guess I don't know anymore, and, and putting on the makeup, and they have the light this right, and, and when they're done, they're supposed to go, wow, and this product becomes a display case for this beautiful remake makeup. Your display case for the work of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your good works shine in such a way that people see your good works. I'm supposed to be able to look at you and see that, that Christ has changed your life. But it's a two-step process. It's make the invisible God visible and then speak the truth boldly. If you merely make the invisible God visible, but don't speak the truth boldly, you're a coward. If you don't make the invisible God visible, but you're speaking the truth boldly, you become a hypocrite. Yeah, you've heard that. One of the great saints said, 
you know, preach the gospel, and if you must, use words. Okay, uh, that's a little whacked. <laughs> preach the gospel, meaning make the individual God visible, but you got to use words. If you don't use words, they're just going to think you're a nice person or you're wired that way or you're self-disciplined. There should be in your life a steady flow of people. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's every day, every week, every month. You should regularly have people say there's something different about you. Not odd, different. <laughs> There's something different about you. What is it? And you need to go, it's ju 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 Jesus. That's what's different about me. That's the normal Christian life. That's not something extraordinary. As you live a transformed life, you become on a missionary journey just like Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Mark. You, you're a missionary. I, I did a funeral. We'll, we'll close with this. I'm, I'm doing a memorial service, and I love, I loved it. I, I love to do memorial services. And we're doing a share time. And I didn't know the guy. So I told him, I can't contribute much to this conversation. Don't know him. And this lady stood up and said, God used Bob to change my life. Well, how did he do that? Well, I'm a checkout clerk at Fry's. And Bob always went through my aisle. He'd even wait in a line to go through my aisle. And he was so nice. And one day, I had this thing that happened. Bob saw I was distressed. He said, are you okay? And I said, no. And he said, you want to talk? And I said, sure. And we ended up, he's, I know I'm on break in five minutes. And he shared the gospel with me. See how that's perfect? The invisible God's will. He didn't do anything. He wasn't going through her aisle and leaving Bible verses behind. He was leaving a living Bible behind. Again, my friend Larry Wright, you may be the only Bible some people ever read. And then when she said, I've got this, what is it? He didn't go, well, just try hard. He said, no, 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 it's Jesus. So as we move to communion, and then we disperse from this place, remember that you're on a missionary journey. And, and your task is to make that invisible God visible, and then to speak the truth boldly. Let me pray as Cody and the team come. Father, thank you for this awesome and amazing truth. Drive it deep into our heart. Change our life. Use us. Make us vehicles you use to take your message to this world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.